0: Let's pray as we come to hear uh, from God's Word. Father, your Word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And so we pray uh, that by your Spirit, you would make it our joy to hear you speak, that you would give us uh, wisdom, understanding and focus by your Spirit. Father, please help me in my weakness to speak clearly and faithfully as I should, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts, would be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Uh, I'm a big fan of uh, the afternoon quiz show, The Chase. Uh, Anyone brave enough to admit? Any fans? Uh, Yeah, two friends. It's good to have you with us this evening. Uh, I'm a big fan of The Chase and what surprises me or stands out to me about this show is actually how many questions there are that come up in the quizzes about the Bible. Uh, And I think it's rare for uh, mainstream media or any show really on TV to talk about the Bible. Now, whoever wrote the questions for the show clearly went to Sunday school because almost all the answers uh, are Jesus and and maybe sometimes Moses for a bit of diversity. But I actually find it quite refreshing that the Bible is treated as a source of general knowledge or even general interest, uh, which for me really stands out. Because it's in stark contrast to the heated language of our premier, who described the biblical sexual ethics as hate-filled, bigoted quackery that has no place in our society. And so it got me thinking about, there's quite a spectrum and range of engagement with the Bible in our society, from dangerous to general interest. But it got me thinking also about there seems to be a range of opinion and engagement even within the church or amongst Christians. Uh, We've just had the Bible read, and sometimes as the Bible reading begins, there'll be the flickering of pages and pens coming out with excitement and enthusiasm to engage with what God has to say to us. But then for others, there is the folding of arms, the slumping further into the chair as you reflect on the day, or maybe even put in that power nap that you've been thinking about all afternoon. Uh, I was once preaching at a a small country church, uh, and although the sermon followed directly after a song, in the 12 seconds it took me to get from my chair to the lectern, uh, an older gentleman had already fallen asleep by the time I got up. Now, you might think that's discouraging, but at least I knew it wasn't my preaching. Uh, Many of us who have been in church for a little while and heard perhaps many Bible talks uh, know that actually we're quite similar. Over the course of our years, we will fluctuate between the extreme excitement and exhaustion. We go through these different experiences ourselves. So there is a spectrum, I think, of engagement with the Bible. Those outside the church, it's too dangerous to open. For those inside the church, we can't wait to open it, it's essential to open it, but then sometimes we're so comfortable with it open, it puts us to sleep. And so I wonder where you are at this evening as you came to church, as we've heard the Bible read and now hear it taught. What were you expecting when you got in the car to come to church tonight? What were you expecting when you turned on the live stream? What is your engagement with God's word? Uh, famous theologian, J.I. Packer, uh, said this in 2013. It's up on the screen for you. He says, The church is in trouble. You'd agree with that, wouldn't you? The trouble is that we're not taking our God seriously enough. What's the proof of that? We're not taking his word seriously enough. We are not making sure that our faith matches the teaching of Scripture. We don't even seem to be interested in finding out. That's not good enough. Maybe you call yourself a Christian, but do you know what Christian truth really is? Could you explain your faith? Do you base it on the Bible? Could you defend it against challenges? I wonder if you agree. Is our church in trouble? Would that be a fair description of your current attitude and approach to the Bible? Last week in the first 12 verses of chapter 2 of 1 Thessalonians, Paul outlined and defended his ministry practice while he was with the Thessalonian church. They knew it, they experienced it firsthand, that he was devoted to telling them the truth, the gospel, and that he had lived among them with great integrity and a deep and sincere love for them. And as we listened last week, I hope you were greatly encouraged and thankful as I was for how generous God has been to us here at Bundy, that in my almost over 10 years here, I have experienced faithful teaching and pastoring from Neil and Andy and then now Clinton and Chris. We are well served in this church and we have much cause for thankfulness. But in our passage tonight, Paul leaves no question about how the Thessalonians had responded, their attitude as he thanks God for what they did when he was with them, how they responded to God's word. And as he reminds them of what they did, they are going to serve for us as an encouragement, as an example of how we should respond to what God does through good gospel ministry. Verse 13, keep your Bibles open. We thank God continually because when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as a human word, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. Notice that Paul thanks God for how the Thessalonians responded to his teaching and ministry. He doesn't thank them. Salvation, becoming Christian, confessing Jesus as Lord is the work and gift of God that God achieves through his spirit through the preaching of the gospel. Uh, Last week in verses 1 to 12, four times Paul reminded them that what he taught them was the gospel, the good news about Jesus' life, death and resurrection and how we are to respond. And he doesn't thank them that they appreciated his teaching of the gospel, or even had a high view of his teaching, that actually he thanks God that they recognised his teaching for what it actually is. The gospel that Paul preached is the very word of God. Notice how unambiguous verse 13 is. When you receive the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as a human word, but as it actually is, the word of God. When Paul preached, God himself was speaking through him. Paul knew this, and he thanks God that the Thessalonians welcomed and accepted it. They recognized that God was addressing them through the words of the apostle. The famous preacher Charles Spurgeon says on this, they were willing to hear it. They were anxious to hear it. They heard it and they were attentive in the hearing of it. They lent a willing ear and a ready mind. They did not cavil, that is, if you like me, you want a definition, to make petty excuses. They did not dispute or question, but they received the word of God. Happy is the preacher who has such people to deal with. This is to be the same for us. As we open our Bibles, it is to hear God himself speak. As we read the words of the apostles like Paul, it's the very word of God. And so hopefully it makes, it makes sense to you that we give such priority and such time here to having the Bible read and preached as we gather. I was at a leadership conference a few years ago Uh, And I was in a preaching workshop uh, with Peter Adam. He's a well-known speaker and author from Melbourne. Uh, And he was asked by a young man how long, it's a trick question, I think, how long he thought a good sermon should be. I won't tell you the answer, just in case you're timing. But it's fair to say that the guy uh, was very unsatisfied with Peter's response. And so somewhat frustrated, he asked another question. Why must church services have so much of their time given to the sermon? And it may uh, or may not surprise you that this church is not immune to that kind of question and sometimes that kind of frustration. But I thought what Peter said was so helpful and in classic Peter Adams style, witty and understated. He said, so much of our gathering is spent with us talking. We chat. We sing, we welcome, we pray, we give announcements. But the sermon is the time to let God have his say. As we gather, we want to hear what God himself has to say to us. And I hope that given what we know about God's character, that is logical, that is good, that we know God's love, his generosity, his care, Shouldn't we long to hear him speak more than to hear us speak? Given that we we should want to know what he says about us, about him, and about our world. He is the God who speaks to give life to the dead, forgiveness to the rebels, and love to his undeserving enemies. Isn't gathering to hear what he says, to focus on him, what that God deserves? And isn't that actually what he calls for? Isaiah 66, God himself says, These are the ones I look on with favour, those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at my word. It's why we are committed to the reading and teaching of God's word every Sunday. Not just here at 5pm, but in our children's and in our youth ministry, in our growth groups, It's why we'll encourage you every week, not just out of a formality, to keep your Bibles open, to test what you hear from God's word so that you know what he says, not my or anyone else's opinion. And it's why we'll encourage you to be reading it for yourself as a habit so that you'll then put it into practice. Because to welcome and to accept God's word as it actually is, is not simply to read it a lot or to read it with reverence, although that's good, but to take it seriously by actually doing what it says. James 1, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves, do what it says. And so I wonder whether this is your first time tonight or your 500th, Have you let yourself be convinced that opening the Bible and hearing God speak is anything other, anything less than a privilege and joy? Have you let Bible reading or growth group or listening to sermons become so routine and so comfortable that you have lost all awe and expectancy and you've only just now become critical all the things that you didn't like? Are you making excuses to not take it seriously or to justify not doing what it says? Because Paul is not simply reminding them of what happened when they became a Christian. Back at the end of verse 13, he reminds them that God's word is indeed at work in you who believe. God works in us, transforms us by his word. Hearing God's word should lead us to change. It's why as Paul continues in verse 14, he now provides the evidence of what the Thessalonians did as they accepted God's word rightly. Verse 14, For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. God's word changed the Thessalonians. They became imitators... Of God's churches in Judea. Now, the point is not that they deliberately did this. Thessalonica was a long trip along the Mediterranean Sea to get to Judea. They did not deliberately copy this church. But the point is that, like all who genuinely become Christian, their lives were changed to display the distinctive characteristics of those who follow Jesus. They took on the family likeness of Jesus' people. Paul thanked God for this change back in chapter 1. He says, they tell, that is, the people around the Thessalonian church tell of how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. As Chris reminded us back in chapter 1, the Thessalonians became Christian everything. No part of their lives was left unchanged as they heard God speak, as they accepted it. And Paul thanks God that these new converts of Gentile background were displaying the family likeness of belonging to Jesus, that their life and character looked just like the churches in Judea who were mostly Jewish and had been established a lot earlier. It's why Paul says that they became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. As God works through his word, he changes us more and more to be like Jesus. Paul saw this in the Thessalonians when he was with them, and he's heard that it has continued since he left them, and so he thanks God for it. And so I wonder, if you're a Christian here tonight, is this transformation into Christ-likeness something you pray and long for? Is it something you uh, seek and expect as you hear God speak through his word? Do you long to be, as Paul says in Romans 12, transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you are now bearing that family resemblance? And perhaps as a good reflection question, you could ask, would those who know you say this about you, that you are changing and becoming more like Jesus? Are you even willing to be called out on it, challenged by a brother or sister in Christ or a pastor or a growth group leader where there is evidence, clear evidence that you are not heeding God's word? And where you do see this change, where you do see progress, whether in yourself or in others... Are you giving God the thanks as Paul does because it is his work in you? God works in us by his word and spirit and it should be a cause not for self-congratulations but for joyful thanks to our gracious God. But notice that Paul has a very particular evidence of the change he has in mind. Uh, They accepted God's word and they were changed by it And he highlights that they did this especially in the face of great cost. Verse 14. For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own people the same things those churches suffered from the Jews. To experience immediate suffering or persecution for loyalty to Jesus is a consistent theme in the New Testament and an ongoing reality for many believers today. Uh, And we heard what it looked like from the reading in Acts 17 as Andrew read it. The gospel was preached in Thessalonica. There was salvation and there was opposition. And the suffering they experienced is quite similar to what we might expect. There was social rejection, verbal abuse, accusations being made, Jealousy led to riots which led to public shaming and humiliation and resulted in Paul being driven out of town. Then he went to Berea and they drove him out of there too. Suffering is part and parcel of accepting and living the gospel. And it's important that we grasp this because the temptation is always going to be for us to be ashamed of what Jesus says or to avoid anything controversial, or just to be silent, or perhaps most likely just to make sure we don't display any of those Christian distinctives if we think it will cost us. But Jesus warns, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. I wonder, maybe you're a little unsettled by the mockery our Prime Minister receives for praying or going to church. Maybe you're unsettled by the anger around Margaret Court's Order of Australia Award based on her Christian views that she is out of touch with majority Australia. Or maybe you're anxious about the change of suppression bill that has passed through Parliament. Our default is always going to be to avoid cost, to avoid suffering or public shame, And we need to be upfront about this temptation so we take it seriously because it is a danger for us. Because although suffering is expected for being loyal to Jesus, God's word is clear that the suffering we endure need not rob us of our confidence or our joy. In fact, it can actually give it to us. There's a number of references in the outline for you if you want to look them up. But suffering for the Christian is the context where clinging to God's word and trusting his promises often takes place. It's often the situation in which we grow and change the most in our Christ-likeness. And so again, if you are a Christian here tonight, it's worth asking if that is your expectation. It's worth reflecting on whether we are ashamed of what Jesus says. Are we hiding or changing any aspect of being Christian to fit in? Are we just conforming to the world to avoid the cost? Are you unwilling to speak up on a controversial subject or tell others that you're a Christian or go to church, or just to be seen to be different? These are, I think, hard, maybe confronting questions, but they are worth reflecting on. Because expecting persecution will not make it pleasant in any way, nor does it guarantee that suffering will lead us to rejoice and a deeper trust in God. And so as Paul reminds them of their willingness to suffer, he expands on it so they understand it further. Uh, And what Paul says about the Jews in verses 15 to 16 have been described as Paul's most aggressive, vindictive and harsh words. What he says has been called anti-Semitic, hate-filled and potential fuel for the fire of a history of mistreatment of Jews. And sadly, I think the Christian church does not have an innocent background when it comes to how Jews have been treated. But while Paul's words might be shocking for us as we read them, we mean to remember that Paul himself was a Jew. And his love and concern for the Jews, his own countrymen, is deeply expressed in Romans 9 to 11. He longed for the Jews to repent and to turn to Jesus. He says he's even willing to forfeit his own salvation if it would result in theirs. After leaving Thessalonica in Acts 17 and 18, Paul continues to preach to the Jews first, despite their hostility. Paul is not promoting hatred of the Jews, nor does he have any joy in speaking of their judgment. Rather, he is writing so that Christians, the Thessalonians, would understand their suffering, which we're going to see next week in chapter 3, verse 3, was still happening after Paul left. He wants them to see and understand their experience of suffering from the perspective of the whole and the wider church. And so he tells them five things about the Jewish persecution. Firstly, he says the Jews are the ones they, uh, sorry, the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus. Uh, now, while Jesus died on a Roman cross, uh, the, Jews clear, the Jews clearly shared guilt in sending him there. So Paul is not blame-shifting or forgetting about Pilate's involvement. It's just a statement of history. Uh, The Jews were at Jesus' trial and even took responsibility. They declared that his blood was on them and their children. Secondly, he says that they killed the prophets. Uh, Jesus also accused the Jews of this and was something they understood from their own history, we see in Matthew 23. Thirdly, he says the Jews drove them out. Uh, Now, that's, again, just a recollection of what we heard in Acts 17. They stirred up a mob and a riot. They had Paul driven out of Thessalonica and then he went to Berea and again they drove him out of Berea. Fourthly, he says, they displease God. This was especially the case in their killing of Jesus. But Paul is actually being very deliberate. It's a loaded thing to say because the Jews were convinced they were serving God, something Paul himself said when he persecuted the church. And then fifthly, he says they are hostile to everyone. Uh, The first century Roman historian Tacitus, he describes Jews of having a dislike of everyone. Uh, But Paul is not making some general comment. He's being very specific. Their hostility is seen in verse 16 in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. You see, Paul understands that without hearing the good news of Jesus, people cannot be saved. Without hearing the gospel, you cannot know and be accepted by the true and living God. And so surely to deprive people of hearing this life-giving good news is hostility and atrocious. And so Paul concludes that by their persecution, verse 16, they always heap up their sins to the limit. The wrath of God has come upon them at last. This idea of heaping or filling up of sins uh, to the limit comes from the Old Testament. God's enemies are always storing up wrath for themselves. They are taking God's patience for granted and essentially making themselves ripe for judgment. We see a pretty vivid example of this of the Amorites in Genesis 15. And Paul sees the ongoing opposition of the Jews in this same way. And I think it's likely that Paul probably has in mind the words that Jesus spoke to the Jews in Matthew 23, it's up on the screen. He says, "'Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! "'For you build the tombs of the prophets "'and decorate the monuments of the righteous, "'saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, "'we had not have taken part "'in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. "'Thus you witness against yourselves "'that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. "'Fill up, then, the measure of your fathers.'" You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town. It's pretty familiar, right? Paul is saying that the Jews are doing what they've always done to God's people. In fact, they're even just doing what Jesus said they would do, heaping up their sins to the limit and God will surely judge them. But the tense of that final sentence in verse 16 is quite confusing. Is Paul saying that God has already poured out his wrath on the Jews? And if he is saying that, what does it mean? And there's quite a lot of options here. Uh, and so if this is of interest or concern to you, please feel free to come and talk afterwards. Now, it could be that Paul sees their rejection of the gospel, their hostility to God's people, as a sign of God's judgment on them and hardening of their hearts, such as what we see in Romans 11. Or it could be that Paul sees the recent events that have happened as evidence of God's judgment of, on the Jews, such as in AD 49, Emperor Claudius decreed the massacre of thousands of Jews during the Passover. Perhaps there was food shortages in Judea, something that the reference of it, the Thessalonians would have understood it straight away. Or it could be that Paul is just simply using the past tense to convey the certainty of a future event. Uh, We might say it is done when asked to do something to convey confidence that we will actually do it. And I think that's the likely explanation here that Paul described God's wrath in chapter one as a future event. God will judge the world when Jesus comes back. And God sees them now filling up their sins to the full measure and he will judge them for their treatment of his people when Jesus returns. It is certain. But either way, whatever wherever we land on what he's exactly saying in verse 16, the point seems to be the same, that Paul wants them and us to see our experience of suffering from God's perspective, from God's standpoint, that God is never distant or surprised. He knows, he cares, he is even in control of the suffering of his people and he will certainly judge. And more as we look at the history of the persecution of God's people, just as we see in Jesus, we see that God can even use his enemy's best efforts for his own purposes and the good of his people. What the Thessalonians and many still today experience is not new, is not unique, and we are not alone. As 1 Peter 4 says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. But why does Paul bring up all of this? Why does simply remind them of what they did when he was there? Why remind them of their experience of suffering? And why does he frame this whole section in thankfulness to God? Well, the Thessalonian church, as we heard in Acts 17, was probably just weeks, maybe months old, when Paul was forced out of town. And we're going to see next week in chapter 3 that he was anxious to see how this young and immature church was going as they continued to face opposition. But having heard, as we'll hear next week, that they are still persevering, he reminds them of what will keep them going. Verse 13, God's word which is indeed at work in you who believe. God's people have always had opposition when they take his word seriously. He's saying, you did, you're still experiencing this and it is this same word that will keep you. Spurgeon said, it was God's word that made us. Is it any wonder that his word will sustain us? Perhaps Paul was worried that they were wavering in their confidence because of the ongoing suffering. Maybe it would cause them to just conform to what's easier or just give up. Or maybe Paul just knew that the human heart is deceptive above all else and so he reminds them of how they responded to convince them that it is by welcoming and accepting God's word as it actually is that we are encouraged and equipped to keep going as God works in us. A few few years ago, I met a guy named Bruce. Uh, Bruce served in the Vietnam War, and although he was not a believer at the time, he took with him a small Gideon's Bible containing the Psalms and the New Testament. Not once did he read it before or during, uh, and he was even mocked by his other soldiers for carrying it with him. After returning from war, he was a changed man, which inevitably resulted in his wife leaving him. After the divorce and having to move house, Bruce was sorting things out, including doing his bookshelf. He was putting them in the categories of fiction and non-fiction. But he didn't know where to put his little Gideon's Bible. So he left it off the shelf. Sat on his table for the next few weeks, and then one day he sat down and read it, the whole thing. And there, in that moment, first reading, Bruce was convicted by God's word, repented and put his trust in Jesus. He has since spent the last 30-plus years teaching RE until, to his great grief, he is no longer allowed to. He continues to teach Sunday school and remains one of the most eager students of the Bible I have ever met. And what's wonderful is that stories like Bruce's are not rare. God's powerful word works to bring people to himself. And I wonder if you are convinced that hearing God's word is sufficient to save people and sufficient to keep you going regardless of what it might cost you. Are you turning to God's word constantly to ground your identity, your experiences, your circumstances in what God has done, what God is doing and what God will certainly do? Now, you might be thinking, that is nothing new or special. Read your Bible and listen well to sermons. And you'd be right. But how easily do we actually make excuses or convince ourselves that it is not a big deal when we don't do either of them? The famous British preacher John Blancard says it well, surely we only have to be realistic and honest with ourselves to know how regularly we need to turn to the Bible. How often do we face problems problems, temptation, or pressure. We might add to that, how often do we face complacency, apathy, envy of the world? Every day, he says. Then how often do we need instruction, guidance, and even greater encouragement? Every day. Then quoting American evangelist D.L. Moody, he says, a man can no more take in a supply of grace for the future Then he can eat enough today to last him for the next six months, or take sufficient air into his lungs with one breath to sustain life for a week. We must draw upon God's boundless store of grace from day to day as we need it. How tempted are you to reduce hearing God's word to mere information? a bit more knowledge that might come in useful, but probably not. How often do we let the whole thing become a little bit mechanical? I put in the Bible reading, I listened to the sermon, but it didn't fix my feelings, it didn't change my situation, or really do anything. It's the most common complaint we get from our youth. It does nothing. But notice that Paul does not remind them of a method or a routine, but welcoming and accepting the very words of God that are true, life-giving and will nourish our souls. Psalm 119 says, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. And then Tozer brilliantly says in the pursuit of God, the Bible is not an end in itself, but a means to bring men to an intimate and satisfying knowledge of God that they may enter into him, that they might delight in his presence, may taste and know the inner sweetness of the very God himself in the core and centre of their hearts. Are you giving yourself to know, to memorise, to delight in and to live by this word? Are you combating apathy, laziness, busyness or whatever it is that will allow you to treat the bible as anything less than the powerful life-giving transforming and sustaining word of god that it actually is let's pray father we thank you that you are the god who speaks to us and we pray and long that we would not squander our privilege to have your words so familiar, so available to us. Teach us to say with the psalmist, I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Praise be to you, Lord. Teach me your decrees. I rejoice in following your statutes as one rejoices in great riches. I meditate on your precepts and consider your ways. I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. Make it so, we pray. Amen.